0: Jeff Simon good evening everyone and welcome to social flight live I'm Jeff Simon we have a fantastic show for you this evening Greg Wooldridge three-time leader of the Blue Angels is with us we're going to hear his story and so much of what goes on behind the scenes at the Blue Angels and they're uh, really just just a fantastic story Before we get started, a couple things. First of all, welcome to uh, the new year. Just thrilled to be here with all of you and appreciate everything that's brought us to where we are today. Social Flight's learning system on socialflight.com is available. If you go check that out, we have wings credits that you can uh, watch videos for and take a quiz and get wings credits. If you are a mechanic or uh, a mechanic with an inspection authorization, then you can go there for our AMT uh, program and get uh, entered into the AMT awards, as well as getting your recurrent training for your inspection authorization directly through Social Flight. Simply go to Social Flight and uh, uh, click on the FAA credits icon. That will come up. You'll be able to go through and use this in order to get your renewal credits. It's just a great way to do this from home on your own time one course at a time and so very uh, very nice way to do that for everyone and it's just something that we are doing to try to support general aviation which is part of everything that we do here in addition to that i'd like to say that tonight's broadcast is brought to us by bose aviation a uh, strong and wonderful partner of social flight their a20 headset is truly an icon in the industry and also their pro flight series 2 is a great headset for those that, uh, those of you out there that may fly uh, the, the stuff that burns Jet A and have, uh, get up there at the flight levels. It's just an, an amazing headset. I know that my good friend, Brian Schiff, flies between, behind uh, the Proflight Series too. so be sure to check that out. And again, thank you to Bose Aviation for supporting social flight. Now, Greg Boss-Woldridge is the only commanding officer to lead the Blue Angels for three separate tours. He was first selected because of his demonstrated ability to build teams where communication, trust, and teamwork took precedence over rank and status. His heart-driven approach proved to be a perfect match for the Blue Angels' culture of excellence. And following his first tour leading the team, the Navy and the Blue Angels were faced with some leadership challenges and media scrutiny. In response to that, they reached out to the one man that they knew could unite the team and lead it forward, representing the honor and excellence of United States Naval Aviation. Following his leadership success with the Blues, Greg has become a nationally recognized speaker, sharing his methods to empower individuals and teams on their journeys towards high performance. I'm going to bring Greg on the line now, and please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Greg Boss Wooldridge. How are you doing, sir?
1: Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm glad Thank to you be so here.
0: Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. Pleasure. Um, I have to say, your, uh, your history of leadership in, in such uh, an amazing role with an iconic team like the Blue Angels is is really just, a, I think, a lesson to so many people of what it takes to not only be a part, kind of like a page in uh, such a legendary uh, group of, of excellent pilots and individuals, but to have been called upon to come back and continue leading the team, um, I'd like to start with with your background. Tell us about kind of where you came from, and how how did how did you actually find yourself in uh, behind the stick of, of any plane, and then how how did you get to the uh, the blues? Oh, that's a uh,
1: that's a that's an interesting story. It might bore it some, but <laughs> I'll try. I doubt it. My three tours with the Blues, I have to say, the third day they gave me three chances to get it right. That's all I got to (laughs) say. I'm not sure I got it right, even at that. But uh, my path in aviation started probably just as any kid does building plastic models. And then uh, on top of the crew tower in Cincinnati, throwing balsa wood airplanes off the top of the tallest building in Cincinnati. And that was about as close as I got to aviation all the way up through high school and college. I never, I had never been on an airplane, never flew in anything until I got, I got the call after I squeaked through college, you know, graduating uh, in the half that made the rest of you guys look good. Um, uh squeaked through got out and it was time to go serve and uh i needed to you know have a skill i wanted to learn a skill if i was going to go on the service right so the navy took me uh said uh, yeah some of your test scores are good enough to fly so we're going to send you down to flight school in pensacola i went down there and um uh, that went pretty well. It's a real eye-opener. I expected to see all these college athletes, these all-stars, you know, and they were mostly just regular guys. I felt, wow, I'm pretty much at home here, you know, regular guys, right?
0: They so, weren't superheroes from day one.
1: No, no, but what you <laughs> learned right away was to take care of each other, right? And that was yeah. a great lesson. Uh, you know, Did your
0: family sure that, have a history of service?
1: Uh, my dad in, in War Two. you know, he served like the – rest of the men, um, and some women, of course. Uh, but beyond that, no, no, uh, no family, uh, careerist, if you will. So it was just something I, I needed to do. I needed to go and serve. And, uh, the Navy was the best offering, uh, got through, got my wings, went through, uh, I, I went through what we call the jet pipeline. And then got what was called then plowed back to flying T-34Bs as a flight instructor. So to, get, to go from getting your wings and jets back to T-34Bs, it kind of was a kick in the shins. But um, I got back there, and I'll tell you what, teaching these young kids like I was, uh, you know, not too much older than them, how to fly was uh, just a hoot. And, I, you know, I was getting 100, 120 hours a month. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was really a lot of fun. Uh, did well enough that I could move on from there to fly jets in the fleet, and that's what I want to do. Went to fly A7s, and here's one of my great second chances that I had, um, and I had a lot of them. You know, people say, "Well, you must, you know, you must have been uh, walking on water there to get the lead to lead the blues." So, oh no, I I was dunking under the water quite a, quite a few times. So. Uh, uh, getting to the fleet, to A7s, and uh, disqualifying my first uh, attempt at qualifying on the ship carrier landings. Got the right number, but not in the quality that I needed. And, and I thought I was done, and they said, no, we'll assign you another instructor and put you in the next class, right? So I got into the next class, and uh, I was told by my new instructor, um, Woldridge you know you can do this. And I know you can do this, but remember one thing. You fly the airplane and don't let it fly you. And I think from a purely aviation point, that that certainly makes sense. You know, don't be reacting all the time. Put that plane where you want it. And I've got a yoke here, right? Control stick is better. Uh, put the plane where you need it to go. You control it. And that applies to all of life. And I, I carry that to my, some of the message that I, that I use. Um, but I got through the second time and, and uh, went out to the fleet. Blue A-7s for a tour, flew A-4s in an adversary role for a tour, another A-7 tour. Well, actually, the first adversary tour, I went from the States, then I went to the Philippines and flew an adversary tour in A-4s. Love that airplane.
0: Uh, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, uh, there's been quite a few people that that I've talked to that reflect back on the A-4 as their favorite plane. Like That seems to be a thing. Tell me about the A-4 because… Okay. That that comes up over and over again with, uh, I've heard it come from, from astronauts, from pilots, uh, and, and all through, a, a lot of, uh, of very well-established people are like, oh, God, the A4.
1: Yeah, 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 kick the tires, light the fires was some, you know, an expression, right? Pretty much applied to the A4, not a whole lot, there weren't any, uh, back in those days, there weren't any real systems there, you had to, you know, align and all that kind of stuff, it just, uh, you know, you got to. All the basics, and you light it up and go. And uh, the roll rate, 720 degrees a second, wow. I mean, that's pretty cool. And it, it had a good pitch rate until it pretty shortly thereafter ran out of gas. It ran out of energy, right? Not gas, but energy. So it was a great airplane to do dogfighting in. Because a lot of times you can intimidate these high-performance guys, F-4s, F-14s later, sometimes F-18s, into seeing your nose come around so fast that they would overreact and bleed off their energy, right? And then you'd have a teaching lesson there. So the scooter scooter was a great airplane. Um, The slats were interesting, you know, the leading-edge slats. if they came out uh, asymmetrically, that was a little challenge. But other than that, terrific airplane. I just loved it. Simplicity. I'm not a big guy, but my flight suits would get napped up from run from rubbing against the uh, the uh, the rails there. I mean, it was uh, tiny. And they said if I ever had to eject, I'd probably have a couple broken legs. So yeah, well, you know, because wow. that's
0: uh, how would you uh, compare the A7 to that when you moved to that?
1: The A7, I used to call it the Harley of the fleet big old hog you know carry a lot of stuff uh, get to the fight as you know usually and do a great job but not as nimble near not nearly as nimble as the a4 i just i just love the, the scooter i really did i got it uh, one time i got into a situation in the airplane in an uh um, inverted spin got this like 90 degrees nose up doing a dogfight fight with another guy and uh waiting for him to fall off he started to fall off and now i'm going to roll in and well, I went to roll in and there's no controls, zero airspeed, no controllability, dropped back on my back, and for which there was it was a prohibited to get to that regime. So again, I got a second chance to am here because they had no known recovery, right? So anyway, got an inverted spin, held on to it, waited way too long, uh, should have ejected a couple of times and didn't and it finally got. I could hear the wind coming by the canopy. Oh, okay, and uh, rolled it upside, right side up.
0: Wow, grace to God. Uh, anyway, wow. that's too much. Said, the is it, was the A four called the scooter? You said that's what we some of us called it a scooter. Yeah, and 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 what was the A 7s nickname? Or oh. Uh, no. I'm not sure. I don't know either. So don't worry about that. <laughs> But that's, wow, that must have been a, 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 a harried experience. I can only, only imagine. Yeah. yeah, I had a and couple
1: of so, And you were
0: in aggressor squadrons at this point, basically? Yeah,
1: uh, we, we like to call them adversary. The, the Air Force calls them aggressor. And uh, I guess maybe it's morphed into aggressor for all that type of training. But um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, went to fly against foreign services, Singapore and some others. Uh, just, just a great time and yeah, against the air force quite a bit. Yeah. And then, then back to the fleet, back to what I needed to do to get my career on track, flying a sevens again and a department head tour then going to a, a short tour as a flag secretary for an admiral. And from there getting selected to, uh, to fly F-18s. Um, I went to the, back when the Midway was not a museum back when it still floated, uh, <laughs> Out in Japan, got got my command tour out there, and they, and I saw that as a way to get command of an F-18 squadron. So it still wasn't; it was still half A-7s and half F-18s, right? And in order to strike that bargain, I said, "Yeah, I'll go to Japan and live there, right? And that's a forward-deployed carrier, right? I'll live there and uh, and uh, fly off that ship as long as I can have F-18s, because I really wanted to fly. So I got to do that, and uh, that's." That was a tour. Command of that was a tour I had before I got selected to the Blues.
0: What was the transition to the F-18 like?
1: (laughs) Um, Challenging because of the technology. You know, I was a basic mimeograph type of guy. (laughs) You know, when it comes to office stuff and, you know, what's in front of you. The A-7 had a little bit, had a, a, you know, an INS, you know, but to get into something with, Everything else, you know, fly-by-wire, GPS, all that great stuff, was was interesting. <clears throat> in some respects, easier because of that. But in some respects, you had to really broaden your world on what you had to know. You know, I mean, what you had to know is vastly increased required knowledge. But the the simplification and the and the ease that it got you to was really nice, and I just loved the uh, combat capability of the airplane. What, what it could see, what you could do with it, you know, with the, both the fighter and the attack mode, truly, an F-A-18. So, um, and two engines. I hadn't flown a two-engine airplane, I don't think, period. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I had. So, oh, no, the T-2 Buckeye, the second one, you know, the V, has two engines. You're making me think real hard. I'm probably talking too much. But uh, the two engines, that, were, that was really nice So and a power, you know, and it was cool looking.
0: That's, that's, that's really, really wild. Do you still remember from your deployment days that uh, that kind of flashback to what it's like to fly off of a carrier?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Now, you know, when you got three or four day landings a week, that was pretty sweet. You know, you get used to it and challenged by it, and the fear level is pretty, pretty low. But when you were flying maybe one night trap, called a carrier landing a trap, when you only got one night carrier landing a week or every 10 days to meet a minimum, uh, that got some adrenaline going. That got the heartbeat really, really pounding to uh, to make that happen. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember my carrier landings. They were, uh, they were so much fun. Just, wow. I enjoyed it, except at night. At night,
0: <laughs> I was one of the guys that looking for a commander's moon out there, right? No, no kidding. That uh, that that sounds amazing. And I didn't realize that you had that crossover with the Midway. Uh, Admiral Lawrence Chambers, that commanded the Midway at one point in in its history, has been here on the show. So that's, that's uh, the, yeah. it. Really, is a, a, an epic air, uh, aircraft carrier.
1: It is, and the, and the museum in San Diego is beautiful.
0: Wow. So, how did the call come to join the Blues?
1: Uh, so, we used to not have email, right? We had naval messages <laughs> on paper, and you'd wake up in the morning, go up and see what all the new messages were, you know, whatever. Uh, and there was one saying, hey, we're looking for a new flight leader for the Blue Angels, you know, and here's where, how you apply, and here's who you apply to. And I read that, and I kind of chuckled, you know. And uh, so, I told some of my, uh, you know, in the ready room, told, so a couple of guys, hey, you know what? You're trying to get a new leader of the Blues. I said, wouldn't that be cool? You know, and they said, I said, hey, they'll never pick me. I'm not even gonna apply. And they said, come on, Skipper, you need to apply. Besides, if you get picked, you can get us some good seats at the air shows and that stuff. I said, nah, I'll never get it. But uh, this thing about teams and teammates and, you know, wingmen taking care of you, no matter what you're doing, whether it's flying or something else, having good wingmen, good leaders. They said, come on, Skipper, you need to apply. And I thought, you know what? You never know if you're gonna get to do something until you ask or you try. And so I tried and I got, you know, the only endorsement I had was from my my air wing commander the CAG, Jim Buren at the time. Oh, never forget the guy, great guy. Um, So he endorsed me and uh, I got selected. I, I Do you, you know, remember
0: I remember the moment of being selected. The what? The moment that you found out you'd been selected.
1: Yeah. yeah, they. I was still in Japan, and they took about six commanding officers, one of them was me, back to Corpus Christi to interview, right? A panel, a couple panels, and have dinner with the staff and their and their spouses. And uh, I got back there, and I saw the people I was competing with. The CEO of Top Gun. Uh, uh, the fella that was doing the 14 flight demos on the East Coast—what's the heck? You'll know his name. He's, uh blonde hair, he went on to fly. He, he perished last year in a, in an airplane. But he was doing all these uh,
0: air shows. What's uh, his name? Somebody out
1: there's it hey, It's this guy, you know.
0: Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll let you know if someone types that in. But don't worry. Keep going. All
1: right. So I'm looking at these guys. Like, well, they're never going to pick me. So I was just relaxed as I could be, you know. I just said, okay, I'm going to have some fun here for these three or four days, eat some good Mexican food, which I couldn't get in Japan, you know, and, and relax and get over to the message center and find out how my troops were doing in advancement. You know, again, we had the kind of information didn't flow as wonderfully as it does today. And uh, one of those panelists, after I got selected, he said, we saw you go over there. He said, you care about your people, right? And I said, yeah. Yeah. You know, I really, I really felt we had to take care of our folks, right? The people that work for you, work around you, work with you, and uh, and that was my big, uh, uh, the way I lived my Navy life. Um, and they said, "Wow, you know that." And he said that uh, really impressed the panel, and that was part of this, part of the reason we selected you. Uh, from there, there it was a, uh, it was done deal.
0: So often, isn't that off fascinating? I mean, that, that seems to be a theme that, of course, we'll hear more about uh, as as time goes on tonight. But people is what got you into it. People is what got you selected in the way that you cared and and led your people. And, and speaking of people, I'm told Dale Snodgrass is. Oh, that's uh,
1: it. Yeah, yeah. What was his call sign? Uh, snort. Snort. That's it. Snort. Yeah, got to, got a rest his soul. You know, I mean, guy loved flying. I mean, he was terrific. Um, so sorry to see him go, but he was one of the guys was competing for the flight leader job. And so I, you know, those guys were so, so much stature wise. I thought, you know, visibility wise than me, I didn't think I'd ever
0: compete with them. But- Isn't that wonderful. So you're, uh, you, you've, you've been given the opportunity. You come off there. How, how do you tra- transition that? How do you start training because uh, for that role, the blue Angels getting getting new people generally you're yourself excluded um with each tour that's a, that seems to be a lot to come up to speed on. I think of those of us who go to air shows and just kind of like look at things we almost think about it as the same people who have been doing this maybe a couple of years earlier when we saw it or five years earlier or more, and yet that isn't how it works
1: no um. The selection process occurs in spring and mostly in the summer. Select wingmen and flight leaders. Now the troops get selected kind of on a year-round basis, but they'll come onto the team at the end of the show season, which is usually the second first or second week in November. And um, but what's kind of very very interesting about the formation of Blue Angels? So there's six pilots in the in the delta. We call it delta formation. Um, out of those six, three are new every year. So can you imagine training three folks to uh, fly in that formation? It's intense training. So you get there for me at the change of command time. Again, that second week in November, last show of the season in Pensacola for the Blues. The new flight leader comes in after two years of the other fellow leading. So I got there and joining me in the six-plane formation were two other folks. So what we did was we started flying just a little bit in November and a little bit in December. And then ironically, uh, flying to ironic, because flying to El Centro, California, the whole squadron, C-130, uh, whatever else you need to get 125 or so 150 people out there, um, and bringing the six jets out, you know, as a new flight leader leading the six plane formation into the overhead at El Centro, California in the Imperial Valley, where it's sunny all the time. Um, uh, on this very day, today is when they flew in, the new team flew into Pensacola today, January 3rd. So you come in at the first few days of January, stand down for a day, figure out where everything is, get unpacked, and then it's twice a day, six days a week for 10 weeks to learn. So it starts out with, you know, further away, start moving it in, start working on cadence and uh, all that good stuff. So it's intense but it uh it happens, and you you finish up that ten weeks with an air show on el centro and it it's so cool
0: wow
1: but the, process, the I, process is amazing and in the Blue Angels, I saw something I'd never seen in my military life before a more democratic, if you will way of leading and 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 coming to solutions and processing what's going on and, and getting the trust built up right It wasn't this you know finger pointing a thumbs down on people, it was more equal in how we worked. And it opened us up to being comfortable with allowing people to know what we had done wrong. You know, And so that, that digging into what, what happened in the flight and being open and trusting and driving fear out, just really driving the fear out of it so that we could get to the solutions we needed to get better and and have a better show, safer show. But safety was always primary uh, goal.
0: So help me understand a little bit more specifically about how something like that happens. So, and by the way, I think it's fantastic that today that with the day we're having you on turns out to be the day everything's beginning at That's El right. Centro for the next yeah. season of for the new Blues leader.
1: New flight leader.
0: So the you you have a, a training flight, and then in your debrief. Is let's is it, is it is, if something's gone a little bit wrong and uh, explain how that how that actually happens to, to yeah. do what you said to have a collaborative and open approach that's a little bit different than what your people are used to doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was Jeff. It was just amazing. You'd go in the in the room. Well, I say hang your rank on on the door on the on the hook before you went into the room. Right, I went into the room you know, relax, had a a bite to eat after flying or a a soda or something and, uh, sit down. And pretty soon I would just say, okay, I thought it was, as soon as I said, okay, it was kind of like the key word that everybody quieted down. We got settled in. And then I would say what I, what my impressions were of the day. I thought it was pretty good. Or I thought, you know, it was really bumpy out there or things hadn't gone as we wanted to. And we'd call it, it was real, a real worker. meaning. That was a hard day, hard day, right? Without saying it was terrible, just saying it was hard. Then um, I'd say uh, uh, generally, the, you know, the weather held up the way we thought. Generalizations, right? And then into specifics about what I could have done better. Me, the boss, the leader saying, I screwed up. Here's how I screwed
0: up. So you're setting that example yeah. right from the beginning of the meeting of what you want everyone else to do based on you.
1: Absolutely. Full transparency. It was part of this culture, you know, and
0: again, it, the culture
1: was huge on the blues. I can talk about that if you want, but um, the culture of openness and gratitude, uh, trust, trust was an ultimate. So when you're flying that close together, you have to be able to trust somebody. Um, so I had to start out with, you know, I was a hundred feet low here. I, I, I turned in a little too soon to hit my checkpoint. And I'll fix it. So you're making a promise to everybody that the next time it happens, you fly. The next time you fly together, they won't see you screw that up or make that same mistake. Uh, It's a promise that uh, really molds and fits that trust together, the promise of improvement, right? And so I'll say it. And then uh, over to the the number two guy, the right wingman. And uh, he says, well, boss, you know, I thought it was a pretty good day or I had a rough day or whatever, and here's what, here were my safeties. We called everything that was wrong kind of a safety. And I said, he would say, yeah, or I, and all, all of us would say, this is my safety again, either low or whatever that safety might've been or out of position or called the wrong thing or whatever, and I'll fix it, right? So they saw the boss open up, become vulnerable, transparent, you know that's another big important thing, and so they felt comfortable doing that. But but it was already ingrained in the culture, so it wasn't like you had to invent this every time you went into debrief. It happened every time you flew, and it got to the heart of the matter. And it got so individually, you didn't get individual right answers. You or individual answers that suited you. You got the right answer by having this this form of debrief. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was amazing. So you'd come out of the debrief, then we'd go and do, you know, look at the videos and all that stuff. And then we, then we'd come out of the debrief having found ways to improve. So you get this Kaizen, this cycle of improvement by identifying what went wrong. You don't have anybody holding back saying, well, I'm not going to tell them what I did wrong, you know, or "I'm not maybe, they, maybe somebody didn't see it. Right. And, and there was none of that. It was because yeah. they tested that, you know, they didn't have to be fearful of retribution or, you know, punishment or whatever. It really got made things work smoothly.
0: How as a, as a, as a leader in that environment, and as a commander in the environment, do you, did you handle the additional fact that you're always going to have people at different levels of ability, no matter where you are. So you are go, always going to have Some people that are more top performers, and some people that are, let's say, having more safeties uh, on a more regular basis. How did you handle that? Was that still in the room, or was some of that out the outside the room? You
1: got a lot of that
0: smoothed out in
1: that ten weeks of of training. Plus, you had you had so much confidence in everybody because of the processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, you know, that you're talking about some really incredible flying and it takes pretty pretty high uh, high performance pilots. So it's kind of hard to pick somebody, pick on somebody um, they we were harder on ourselves than our teammates were on us and that that brought us closer together because we say hey, come on buddy let's go talk about it. you know I was in I flew your position last year because we kind of rotated positions right mm-hmm. One year next and that's how we could keep that uh expertise up. You know, if somebody said, and even in the debrief, somebody said, Hey, you know, this is my third time in a row that I couldn't get in position for this maneuver. I was a little bit out of, and I can't figure it out. Then we do mentoring. Right. And it was, it wasn't like, Oh, you knucklehead, you, you, you'll never get it. You know, you're messed up. No, it was, come on. I, I had the same problems or well, let's talk about it. You know, the one-on-one mentoring that would occur. So you talk about I think you were kind of implying a stratification of talent or whatever, but there really wasn't any of that. We never looked at it that way. Well, wow. it was yes. something I learned when I stepped foot across the threshold when I went at an Aviation Officer Candidate School and the Marines were driving, and Marine drill instructors were there. You learned that you take care of your, your wing, you take care of the folks that you work with. And, um, so th- those issues, there were a couple times in my four opportunities to lead the team four different years, you might say, or you would say Um, two times, maybe when there was a little breakdown, uh, something wasn't admitted to, or, and and that's when, you know, as a commanding officer, as a leader, as a CEO, whatever, you do have to take that on, you know? And so, yeah, you kind of take that person aside and say, Hey, look, Pretty well known that this happened in that maneuver or whatever it might be, could be even a social thing that went on outside of flying that we had to correct, and that's when the leadership has to take care of it.
0: Um, take us behind the scenes for how how the whole you know air show works, or what what's happening that the that isn't so so much seen by everybody else. Is the routine itself the same year to year? Does the routine evolve? How does this uh, kind of well, what what happens that we don't see because yeah, we all it, see the big arrival and then the big show.
1: Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, see flashing blue airplanes flying around, right? You don't uh, – you see a couple of enlisted folks out in front of the airplanes, you know, directing them and getting them started up and recovering them, and things like that. But you don't see on a show generally about 50 of the enlisted folks would come, the, the people that do all the hard work and then loan us the airplanes for 40 minutes. Uh you don't see all of them. You don't see the C one thirty crew very much n- unless we get it you get the, the pleasure of seeing that airplane fly, which is a new airplane as of last year, a new more much more powerful C one thirty. Fantastic. So we got the super hornet and we got the super Hercules now. Uh we, the team does. I kinda yeah, still I still do that on occasion. Uh, <laughs> jump in. Um so you don't see all the, the back work that goes on. You don't see all the coordination. I mean, we, you know, we've got an officer that is strictly involved. We, the Blues, have an officer strictly involved in and in making sure these, these show sites are up to speed on what's going to happen. The FAA knows what we're going to do. We have all that established. Uh, tons of work to make sure that something as simple as smoke oil, you know, You've got to have smoke oil on site, and this is the kind we need. This is how much we need. And we go through that in what they call the winter visits. So while the team is doing winter training, the 10 weeks in El Centro, number seven and number eight are taking the two-seater, and they're flying to all the show sites saying, and giving briefs to the, the uh, organizers. This is what we need. And, oh, by the way, there's a manual about that thing. So, and they're, uh,
0: But they're flying in 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 an F-18?
1: Yeah, in a two-seater, you know. <laughs> wow. a winter pad. When we're we're training down in El Centro, they're they're going around and having nice meals, and no, uh, they do a heck of a lot of work, and it's it's essential. So all that back work goes on before the show season show season even starts, and then uh, once it starts, we continue to check up and make sure everything's marching ahead in the right way, um, checking in with the show sites, making sure they're still okay with everything, and uh, the routine was. Basically, if the show was east of the Rockies, so in the eastern, Midwest to eastern part of the U.S., southern, uh, we would take off on we would we would take Monday off from the last air show, and usually it was a paperwork day, but we said no, it's a non-work day, right? And then Tuesday we'd come in and have some meetings, practice. Wednesday come in in, the, in Pensacola, have some meetings, practice, uh, and then Thursday we'd fly off to that show site. You know, Quad Cities, Davenport, Moline, whatever, whatever that might be. Fly off to that show site, land, refuel, talk about it a little bit, and then go up in pairs. And my back when I was a team, went up in pairs to get our visual checkpoints. So there's like a dozen things you have to identify that set you up for each maneuver uh, within that five mile radius of operations. So you had to go out and pick these out. I mean, they had to be very specific, you know, uh, shell station, the shells, the sign of the shell service station right on the corner there. That's my two mile checkpoint. you know, mile and a half had to fly in and I'm flying at 360 knots. Uh, so I know exactly how far a mile was, right. Come out from center point, stopwatch in that case on the, on the glare shield, stopwatch count 10 seconds, mark, you know, one mile. And go, okay, what have I got in a mile? Anyway, go out and do do all that for all six guys, land. um, And this is after we'd flown there, first of all. Get a glass of water, fly again to get checkpoints, come back, talk about the checkpoints, and go flying again. So Thursday was a pretty darn busy day. Um, And then get ready on Friday morning to go to high schools and hospitals and wherever we could have the opportunity talk about this this world of excellence that we live in and how you could get there or to just bolster people and and bring them new you know excitement do that in the morning and then fly show in the afternoon host to make a wish sometime during the weekend we had a great relationship with them team still does and then a show on friday and show on sunday i mean saturday and then sunday and then sunday fly back to pensacola and then wow so it's a And that's 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 one of the reasons we kept, oh, by the way, at show sites, probably Friday night and Saturday night, there'd be a social function, you know, either the city leaders or a corporation or the shows, the air show party would occur and we'd have an obligation there. So um, it was intense. And because of that intensity, it was a two two year tour. And then you got back to the fleet, you got back to flying off carriers or, another job you know after after being in the blues that was a
0: a great time that's that's absolutely amazing is it true or is it urban myth that as the season goes on you guys get tighter and tighter and tighter in the formation
1: absolutely true um as and it comes from that being able to debrief right And, and and working on things that make you smoother make you more confident, but the confidence is built around trust, right? So you trust your wingman, you try. they trust the flight leader. When I saw a video clip of how close the guys were, I said, you guys are flying way too close to me. He said, we got to move it out. And I said, how can you do that? And they said, we trust you, boss, you know, very plain and simple. So you earn that trust. Um, yeah, you start out at about three feet as the season begins and maybe two or three months in and it kind of depends on whether you're a first year boss or a second year boss where you've got the skill to to make it comfortable uh for the wingman about three or f- three months in i'd say and then again this is all personal experience how the team does it these days has has changed positively i'm pos i'm sure of that um and so you do move it in and say, Hey, let's, let's low, let's lower their minimum altitudes. We could do that. Right. So you keep my high. So, you know, if you're off a little bit, well, you got room to be off a little bit, but as you got better, I could bring the formations in a little bit lower and you can bring them in a little bit closer because of the, the expertise you were generating and this process of Kaizen. We you know, Another way of looking at it is a diamond performance framework with these you know, debrief is on the far left corner of the of the diamond. Leap levels, what you created from that debrief, briefing, execution with trust, and then back up to the debrief. So all of that really allowed you to close your tolerances. Now were were there hiccups? Yeah. You know, it's bumpy out there today. Let's let's move it out a little bit. Or we've had two or three days straight of of not being comfortable let's go back and move it out again but all of it's part of this being able to adjust based on what you learned in the debrief and being comfortable with that but we did close it in and close it in and close it. now they're now they'll even admit to being down to 12 inches I, I never admitted to that but uh, I'm sure my <laughs> were, were thought on occasion uh, you just don't want to swap any paint that's the deal.
0: Wow so your first tour was in 1991 yeah and uh and then you so you were basically 91 92 uh, uh, 93 like along for quite a time tell me a little bit about what uh what happened that, that brought you back cuz the, the navy uh, and 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 the uh, blue angels had some challenges that that had them reach out to you
1: well i i know we got a bunch of folks on here watching and listening that uh, that i can be open and honest with you know uh, you know that so i left the team turned it over to a great guy ripper bob stump in 93 and uh 92 in the fall was what we what's still called the taylor convention and uh the bunch of folks were were just fired up after after the stuff that went on in iraq you know the combat for a bunch of folks And so this was kind of a rowdy convention and there were some things that went on that shouldn't have happened. And because of that, um, any senior officer that was there was asked to step aside from their duties. So Bob was asked to step aside as leader of the blues and he'd been there and he'd been through winter training and it was about May. And, uh, they gave me a call and say, can you come back? And I said, uh, you know, I think it stinks that you made him stand down. It was a political fiasco uh, where the Navy wasn't trusted to do their investigations, right? And you're probably gonna get some chat back on this, some of you remember. Um, and so I came back and uh, and it was fairly easy transition because a lot of the folks that I had flown with were still on the team. So that, that went very smoothly. And then uh, that finished, finished the 93 season, Bob came back for 94 and did a great job and then, we all marched on. I went out to uh, command a base in Lemoore, California. That was a, that was a wonderful tour, you know, making it a place to operate and live uh, and all the, all the things you needed on that base at, to live like a small city were there. And to 13,500 foot runways and the best airplanes the Navy had that we we're training with at that time. Um, and so I got, I'm sitting there in 96 getting ready to retire had my retirement set up uh, and I get a call. Hey, uh, we got a, We got a, a challenge in Pensacola and we, we'd like you to come back. It's the 50th anniversary of the team. Um, it was a, a, a challenge, uh, a leadership challenge. It was handled with confidentially and with a great deal of, of respect and so they ironed things out and they said, well, we need to try to bring somebody back. And they found me and they said, uh, Hey, can you, can you come back and, and finish out this year for us? And I said, look, I haven't flown in like two and a half years. You know, I I, just, I got checked out in the C-12, a great airplane. I love that airplane, but uh, it had a whole different world, a whole different mission. Um, and I got a couple of flights with a uh, couple of old friends in the F-18. Larry Packer was there, a former right wingman for me. And he was in a squadron there. So everybody went back to squadrons right after they got out of the blue. And uh, he got me a couple of flights, but I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. Uh, called in an old crew chief of mine that was teaching Navy maintenance there in Lemoore, Ron Pickens, a great guy. And uh, I said, Ron, can you, they, and they flew a blue jet in for me. So I said, back up a little, I said, all right, I'll give it a try. You know, I don't, no guarantees, and uh, they brought a, the number one jet into, into the base. I told my ops officer, uh, shut, can you get a, get me a 12,000-foot waiver for Saturday morning, you know, low, low traffic, low training day, and give me an hour of the airfield? And he said, sure, Skipper, we can do that with the FAA and everybody else. So I, I got that one jet, got the former Blue to go through all the hand signals with me, and I hadn't learned anything else, right? So – it was natural, you know. I had three years with the team before, so watching me do that, and I was just and I would look to the side like I was looking for my wingmen, who were now imaginary, to to give me a cue to you know do something. Took off, flew a single plane airshow profile over N A S Lemoore, and uh, then the next day I flew down to El Centro and we did a couple weeks of training down there, and uh, got back on the on the circuit,
0: you know. How did it? How did it feel getting back in the seat when you didn't think you were going to be flying an F eighteen again?
1: It felt great. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, again, again, like in '93. I, I got to be honest with you. I didn't. I wouldn't. I wasn't too excited about why this had come about. And I truly, well, I sort of didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. But I, I guess in my heart of hearts, I'd say, you know, nothing has changed that much. So let's do it. And, and what was crucial again, we talk about trust being in the culture was to regain trust with the old, with the wingmen. None of them had been there with me, but they'd heard good things. And so they had to become trust trusting of me. And so did all everybody, the hundred and fifty in the squadron. So I'd go around and talk to everybody about, you know, giving it your best and we're gonna get back on the step. The skill and the talent was still there, but the morale was really low. So we had to mm. kind of Pick that up and get going, and it was good.
0: Wow, that's uh that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, now you got to do some some pretty amazing things during that time. I mean, back, uh, did you do an air show in Russia? As I understand it, in good old Moscow. That is New not Moscow. something we think of happening now. <laughs> so tell well, me what yeah. that was like in 1992.
1: Not a friendly basis air show now, anyway. Oh, it might be. Yeah, so in 1992, we went to like eight or nine different countries with the capstone of that being uh, flying in Moscow. Um, didn't think we'd get it. The Air Force wanted the trip. It was called a military to military exchange program, kind of after we had become friendly after the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union dissolved into separate entities, and it was time for our military to get familiar with their military so we could maintain this peaceful coexistence and so one of the things was to fly to moscow and they decided let's do a a jet demonstration team and it was between us and the thunderbirds and it was in 91 late 91 so we had to go fast to make this happen in 92 um uh and it's another story in and of itself about how we snagged this uh this trip Uh, but that's a good story i'll tell you later but
0: (laughs) You can tell it go. (laughs) Well,
1: I didn't think we were going to get it, so uh, I uh, I went to all the Navy folks and admirals and called the Pentagon. Hey, Admiral, we got a chance to go to Moscow, you know, and the services aren't too keen on that because what the teams do, they help recruiting in the United States, right? So when we go overseas for a month, it's you know, it's got some mixed uh, mixed receptions there. Uh, so I called all these, all, all these admirals and said, can you work on getting us to be the team that gets to go? And they say, well, we'll take a look at it. I never heard a thing. And I thought, hmm, we're flying F-18s and we're trying to sell F-18s overseas. And I had had, had this meeting, a plant tour, our team did. And I met a gent named John Capilupo in St. Louis. And I, I think he was the CEO of Mac Air or St. Louis or something, but he had a he had a high, high position. I'd met him there and he talked about, um, how they needed to keep their production line going because once they slow down, these vendors drop off because they got to have work, right? And I, <clears throat> so I said, Mr. Kappeler, this is a situation we'd like to know that uh, the Thunderbirds are going to take the F-16 to Europe and get to show it off. And maybe people will buy that. I bet these other folks in Europe would love to see McDonnell Douglas, then McDonnell Douglas before Boeing came into the picture, uh, F-18 and maybe buy. And so, I said, and I bet your senators would love to keep this employment at a high rate in St. Louis. By the end of the week, the angels are going. So <laughs> I, it's
0: kind,
1: of, kind of an interesting story. Uh, and, and that's the way it seemed to happen. So and I'm pretty comfortable that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, flying into Moscow. So we 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 came out of Turku, Finland, where we'd blown a show. The first show was... We transited from Loring, Maine, tanked all the way across to Stockholm, blew a show there, and then into Finland, blew a show there, and now it was time to go to Moscow. So I check in with St. Petersburg Control, Blue Angel One, uh, you know, at 10,000 meters or whatever. We were using meters then or whatever. Uh, And they said, the controller said, "Uh, Blue Angel One, what are you? And at the time we had eight airplanes. They said, well, eight US Navy F-18 fighters. And a long pause, <laughs> and the only thing he, the controller said was "continue." So <laughs> we just, you know, used our our GPS to storm on down toward toward Moscow. We the Russian knights were supposed to intercept us. We started locking well, so we had our weapon systems with no weapons, right? So we started locking these guys up as they're coming up, through, and we hear them yelling, ah, and we see them veering off. They can't find us, you know. We're going oh, huh, this is sweet, you know, so we're, <laughs> we're locking them up with a weapon solution. I, you know, you probably got a lot of folks in on this thing that aren't military, but you gotta love it. you gotta love it. So <clears throat> they finally joined on us. We go in, <coughs> uh-huh, excuse me, we go into the overhead in Moscow and they're on our wings, the Russian Knights, the SU-27 flankers, right? And so we come yeah. in overhead and they pitch off and then we pitch off. But we saw a bunch of stuff there at uh, uh, Kubinka, the major military base south of Moscow, where we, we staged, that uh, surprised us uh, a lot of, lots and lots and lots of airplanes. But, uh, excuse me a second, I'm going to sneeze. Uh, sorry, this is one of those on-camera things that you don't want to have to do. No worries, the,
0: <laughs> the lights will do it. <laughs>
1: yeah, pretty, pretty fun up here in the Northwest. Um, so, a lot of things were strange there. Uh, not what we expected, not as nearly as sophisticated as we expected, but one of the coolest things was getting to fly, uh, in the backseat of an SU 27 flanker or the MiG 29, whichever one you wanted. So they had two seaters. We had a couple two seaters. So I took their flight leader with me and he took me with him. Uh, and it was just fantastic. I mean, because back in those days, you, you, you studied the Intel, you know, cause Nobody had these airplanes, kind of, that we were allowed to talk about. Uh, and so to get to actually fly in one, it was a real treat. And one of the things we, that I saw, and I think we all agreed, uh, they were about 10 or 15 years behind us technology-wise, and that was, that was a good thing.
0: Did you get to kind of see what they could do? Did they ring uh, them out a little bit for you with the plane? Oh, yeah. you're in there?
1: The FU-27 was the most powerful airplane I've ever flown. in. I'd had flights in the F-15 and uh, of course the, the Hornet, but I'd never seen anything like that. It was terrific. I had a hard time trying to figure out what I was going to show Vladimir and my the, the flight leader who was in my backseat. His name was Vladimir, great guy. And uh, so I just showed him some of the maneuvering cape characteristics of the airplane. And he was
0: pretty impressed. It's, it's really a brute force thing with some of those aircraft. I will, we'll say to anybody out there, there there's a, fantastic museum on Boeing field up not far from you that I remember they put the kind of the adversarial aircraft next to each other throughout the museum, the, the U S version and the, and and the Russian version. And when you sit there side by side and you look at it, it's, it's just a completely different philosophy of how to approach anything. You know, this one of the, the American planes were just so graceful and meticulous and every every part and joint and seam and look perfect the Russian one looked like in many cases someone had taken a sledgehammer to form the part but yeah. its power was unbelievable
1: yeah I had the one of the ger- one of the generals there we've We've met a lot of Russian generals a lot of the older ones I don't like what's going on here you know they wanted the old <laughs> Soviet Union back right uh, one of them had been at Chernobyl flying one of the helicopters that capped the, uh, the reactor but he, he would he tell them, you know we can we can take off with one engine with the Flanker, you know. and, it's a, and they probably would, you know, if they. If they don't want <laughs> I think their engine turnaround times were a lot faster. They burned them up a lot quicker than than great American technology uh, enabled us to
0: have much better equipment. Well, so um, now another thing that's interesting you you are part of uh, a movie uh, that uh, or uh, helping on scenes, making the movie happen that is coming to theaters in July. Uh, tell us a little bit about the IMAX movie on the Blue Angels. And I understand that another show guest of ours, Kevin LaRosa has also been working with you on that.
1: Yeah, Kevin. In fact, I, I, you said that he said, get Wildridge you know. But, <laughs> he did. Yes. <laughs> <you got> some- <laughs>
0: If people true. want to know how how show guests work here on Social Flight Live. it It's yeah. it's clearly a network of one guy says, oh, this is who you really need to have next.
1: Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, I appreciate that from Kevin. He's a, he's a great guy, good friend. Um, a year, about two and a half years ago, uh, Rob Stone, who had made an award-winning documentary, Blue Angels Around the World, Speed of Sound, and most, a lot of the kids that are now, that are now adults flying with the blues say, yeah, that was my motivation to see that, uh, see that movie, Uh, and Rob and I have stayed friends for, you know, ever since that came out in about, it came out in about 94, but uh, won a lot of awards, so about three years ago, I I called Rob and said, hey Rob, why don't we make a 75th anniversary uh, Blue Angel movie with this new, the uh, Super Hornet and be the 75th. And, and so we charge into it, you know, we're going to do it on the basis of finding corporate sponsors. Right. And we had a couple of big companies that were interested, um, really wanted to do it. And then the pandemic hit. And I like to say everybody duct taped their wallets together, you know, so the, the money kind of went on hold and we kept waiting and waiting. And then I, I had the opportunity to, uh, I can't remember how I got it, but I go up and talk with Kevin Larosa and his cinematography team in Tri-Cities, Washington, in the snow, and they're filming these snow scenes for Devotion, the great movie that came out in Thanksgiving. And uh, got, got give the give those guys a, you know, a talk about safety and about this thing about continuous improvement and and uh, culture and all those things, and and he really appreciated. It. He said. He said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, we're trying to make, you know, this movie that has been on hold. he said, well, uh, let me get, get you uh, uh, hooked up with uh, uh, Glenn Powell, who was the hangman on <clears throat> Top Gun Maverick, right? He said uh, he loves the Blue Angels, you know. And and so we finally got hooked up with Glenn, and he hooked us up with Creative Artists Agency in, in, in L.A. And then they helped us. Uh, plow the ground to get a sponsor. IMAX uh, first of all, Glenn Zipper who was who a partner with uh, Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' company the Zipper Brothers he, he said, well, we got to get this we got to have it. They took it we want to produce it at, from Bad Robot J.J. Uh, 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 Abrams was excited about it and they said, now we need to find somebody that'll put some backing in there and IMAX took it and IMAX for the first time ever is making a documentary style, full theatrical run movie. And, um, so in the rest, you know, we started production, uh, last January, got it through the Navy. That was a, a huge wicket to, to clear because they want to make sure it reflects good on the Navy and that we actually are going to go through with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we got through Nevin to West with that. And then, I started production this year and we've been, we went to a whole bunch of show sites. We did some great stuff with Kevin LaRosa and his helicopter. We put cameras on airplanes. Most crucially, we got the trust and confidence of the blue angels. I mean, when we were able to take a helicopter and have it out there moving around during a flight demonstration, I was a little scared of that, but, uh, 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 Lance Benson, Bub, who had flown, uh, I think, uh, three, four, five, or six, position in the Blues said he got in the left seat. Kevin Larosa in the right seat. Michael Fitzmaurice in the back with the camera. Big bubble nose uh, on the front of the airplane, a turret where the camera was. But Bub said, "I know how to where we need to go." And they briefed for hours and hours and hours. Got the confidence of the team and went out. and Got inside the format. You're going to see shots shots of airplanes that you'll you'll never have seen before and and all with Sony Venice cameras which are IMAX quality and this other camera called the, the Phantom, and I know we're running out of time more importantly i think is what you'll see about people we're going to you know we we go into their homes at breakfast time at dinner time we go to their social events we go to the briefings and debriefings you're going to see stuff you've never seen before we're going to look at what the challenges were individually and as a team, how they resolved those things, how they overcame them in this year-long journey. Uh, putting the the Super Hornet on display, it it's going to be epic, and it'll be out hopefully in June. You said July. I'm hoping for June. We we're just kind of wrapping production, which is where you do all the filming and stuff, and then you go and we go into six months of post-production with story writing, uh, editing tons and tons of film to edit and, um, adding music. Our director's a music guy and he's fantastic. So look for it. It's going to be terrific.
0: That's fantastic. And, and yeah, June, June's even better. Before the 4th of July, be able to get out there. It sounds like it's going to be an incredible, incredible storyline. And as you said, from some of the top people in the film industry, between Kevin and, and Fitz and, and, and everybody else that you're working with, that's that's got to be amazing. Then,
1: let Rob and I become executive producers, so it's kind of fun to see that credit roll across the screen. And we get to work, you know, Rob and I both worked really closely all year with the team and developing that trust because I'd been there. You know, I knew what a distraction would be and tried to work with boss Kesselring. Brian, what a great guy.
0: Well, uh, I am. I'm grateful because we wouldn't have this if it weren't for you. And the idea that 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 we're going to get this inside look to uh, to everything that goes into to the blues with with all of this coming together, I think is it's 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 probably more than people even understand when they go to see it. Yeah,
1: it's going to be good. You'll people will want to see it twice. I know. Kind of like Maverick. And it'll be <laughs> a full, it's going to be full length. You know, it's not. And we're going to make a forty-minute documentary for a museum. So so much to do. So
0: wow. Much. that That's that's amazing. A- and there's one other thing I want to make sure I touch on, and that is uh, the Blue Angels are breaking another bound, another barrier, another boundary there. Um, and that is having the first female uh, pilot uh, as first part pilot. of the Blues. First, first
1: demo pilot. pilot. Yeah. Amanda Lee, AKA Stalin. And I think they're trying to change your call, so I don't know where she got that. <laughs> but, uh, she got selected this year. She'll be in the formation next year. She uh, did Super Hornet demos this year uh, on the East Coast. I believe Super. I don't think she was F thirty five. I think she was Super Hornets. Did the demos there. Terrific pilot. Eight years as an enlisted woman. Very rare, and uh, to have that kind of uh, enthusiasm and persistence to get through the, the various programs and now become a Blue Angel. Gotta love that we
0: Absolutely. That's fantastic. And obviously, I, 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 I love that anytime anyone's breaking, you know, barriers uh, in this. We've had uh, Nicole Malikowski on the show, Caroline Blaise Jensen as well. And uh, and it's going to be uh, amazing to watch Amanda Lee's uh, story as it unfolds. Certainly.
1: And, and the other new Blue Angels as well. have got really great bronze and uh, the new boss, uh, Alex Armitas, uh, scribe, call sign. Great folks.
0: That's fantastic. Well, uh, Greg Boss Wildrich, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on Social Flight Live. Your stories are fantastic. And, and the impact that you have had personally on uh, not just kind of uh, having one chapter of the Blue Angels, but but three and helping really uh, keep the team on track uh, through very, very challenging times is, is something that I think we're all grateful for.
1: Well, thanks, Jeff. I, I wouldn't, Say it took anybody special. I mean, the, the folks that worked with me were the ones that made it happen, and I was just blessed to have a Three great teams. That was terrific.
0: And and please let everyone know how to find you. I know you do uh, quite a bit of promotional speaking, um, uh, with with companies and organizations and things like that. How do people find you for that? I
1: work with a former wingman, John Foley. Uh, he was my five and six guy on my teams, and uh, he's been on the speaking out a long time and he pulled me in and he's at his whole website and where you can schedule stuff is John kind of a long name but Johnfolleyink.com
0: excellent johnfoleyinc.com. well Greg thank you again so much uh, I'm I'm grateful that you've taken time to join us here on social Flight live and I wish you the best in the new year of 2023
1: thanks Jeff same to you happy New Year appreciate Absolutely. it Hello, Bob. thank you good night Good night.
0: And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on social Flight Live. We'll be off next week off flying. So there'll be no show on Tuesday, January 10th, but we'll be back on Tuesday, January seventeenth with a great show. Corky Fornoff will be returning. And he has all sorts of lessons for us all about flying. You may uh, know him from all of the James Bond movies that he filmed, tons and tons of historic aerial work that he has done, but he's flown so many different planes. He's just. We wanted to have him back to talk to us about lessons learned and challenges that can, we can all benefit from in all of our flying. In addition to that, on Tuesday, January 24th, we will be back with uh, AOPA President, Mark Baker. He will be here, Mark will be here to talk to us a lot about what has happened back in 2022 and what to be expected from 2023 here in general aviation. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight, blue skies. (laughs)